Listen now to the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me reigns before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you to ask that you would grant that illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, that we might see with spiritual eyes that glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grant us, Father, this vision as we study the text of Scripture together this afternoon. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me continue with our series of the Gospel according to John. And thus far, thus far, if you remember, we've been introduced to the book and we've covered the first 13 verses in which the evangelist discloses the identity of the Word or Son of God in verses 1 through 5, a witness about the Word in verses 6 through 8, and then a divided response to the Word in verses 7, or pardon me, verses 9 through 13. In our text for this afternoon, we find the Apostle John focused upon the redemptive mission of the Word by way of his enfleshment or incarnation in the world. And as we'll see, that redemptive mission is the fullness and fulfillment of all that preceded in the law of Moses. Particularly in what the Lord did through Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Just as Moses longed to see the glory of God after ascending to the summit of Mount Sinai, but was only allowed to see its after effects, so the apostles, John says, saw that glory with their own eyes. You see that in verse 14. And just as Moses Fellowship with the Lord as if face to face, and was therefore equipped to dispense divine grace through the law. So the only begotten God, the Son, who is at the Father's side, literally in the Father's bosom, has revealed God in all his fullness, being as he is the very source of that saving grace. You see that in verses 17 through 18. And just as the glory of God descended from Mount Sinai and then indwelled the tabernacle, thus dwelling among his pilgrim people as he led them through the wilderness to the promised land, so the only begotten Son, the Word, descended from heaven and was incarnated that he might dwell among his pilgrim people. All of John's teaching about the incarnation is pointing back in redemptive history to the way the Old Covenant 
anticipated it. So that from His fullness, He says in the text before us, we in the New Covenant receive grace upon grace. As we finish John's prologue this afternoon, we'll divide our text into two sections. The first, verses 14 through 15, where we see seeing the divine glory. And then second, verses 16 through 18, where we see receiving the divine glory. So there's a seeing of that glory and then the receiving of that glory in the text. So beginning that first section there, verses 14 through 15, we see seeing the divine glory. In order to fully appreciate what John's doing in these verses, I think it's important for us to refresh our memories about what happened at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. The events of Exodus 33 happened immediately following, if you remember, the golden calf incident. They begin with the Lord commanding Israel to depart from Mount Sinai without Him. This was, of course, before the tabernacle was built. At this time, Moses used a temporary structure called the Tent of Meeting to commune with God, which he pitched outside the camp. After commanding his people to depart without him, they began to grumble against him. And so Moses went out to that tent to meet with the Lord. The text says, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people saw the pillar, and all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks. To his friend. I don't know if you realize just how odd it is for the text to describe anyone as speaking with the Lord face to face. But this is extremely odd. Moses is the only Old Testament prophet who has ever described as speaking to the Lord as if face to face. No one else is ever described in that way during the Old Covenant. On this occasion, Moses met with the Lord in order to intercede on behalf of the congregation. And as he interceded, he said this, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people? from every other people on the face of the earth. And Moses understands that what's, what makes Israel special is her God. The only true and living God chose Israel as His own possession. And for the first time since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden at the beginning, He is dwelling 
among men. If God is not with them, then they're no different from any other people. The Lord agrees with Moses' request, and so Moses makes another request. The text continues saying, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. There's Romans 9. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Then the Lord commanded Moses to prepare two new stone tablets on which the law might be written once again. He had destroyed them, of course, when he came down and found God's people he engaged in idolatry. He destroyed the first. And to ascend to the summit of Mount Sinai and present himself there before him. Then the text says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who would by no means fear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Afterward, the Lord renewed his covenant with Israel through the giving of blood sacrifices and through a covenant meal which the priests and the elders take on the side of the mountain. These are the historical events that are running in the background of what John now says about the incarnation of the only begotten Son of God. Look at verse 14. The text says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, Glories of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, what we just heard from Moses about the importance of God's dwelling among His people. That's what made Israel different. That's what made God's people different. God dwelt among them, and He would not go with them. They would be no different from any other nation. So now the language of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us I think takes on a whole new significance. Of course, the word to which John now refers is the same word that he referred to back in verse 1. It's that word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. This is the Son who proceeds eternally from the Father, the only begotten of the Father. John tells us that this one, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. Now, by the word flesh, John doesn't mean to suggest that the Son merely put on a human body. I'll never forget, I was sitting in my, one of my first seminary classes 
on the doctrine of Christ. And the professor was uh, telling us about various early church heresies. And he told us about a heresy called polymerianism. He explained what that meant. It essentially meant God in the body. That's essentially what's being said. That the Son of God took on a body. And I thought to myself, well, that's what I've always believed about the Incarnation. I didn't know I was a heretic. Thankfully, it's not that I was a heretic. I just was ignorant. I didn't know any better. I hadn't been taught the truth. By flesh, the Apostle John doesn't mean that the Son of God merely took on a body. He means He took on a complete human nature, both body and soul. What John is saying, in no uncertain terms, is that this one who was with God and who was God eternally assumed unto himself a full human nature within his creation. At Mount, at Mount Sinai, God wrote his law upon two tablets of stone. In the incarnation, in the incarnation, he wrote it upon the human heart. The humanity of Christ. The Word became flesh. And through His incarnation, John says, He dwelt among us. Again, we must remember from Exodus 33 the supreme importance of God's dwelling among His people. Indeed, this is the most basic promise of God's covenant with man. I will be your God and you will be my people. What God is saying is, I will dwell with you, and you will dwell with me. We will be friends. We will be family. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing to think that God is your family member now? He's adopted you as his child. He is with you. The word translated dwell could also be translated tabernacle. The picture is one of God pitching his tent to live among his people. Of course, Exodus 33 and 34, in that passage, he did that quite literally through the tent of meeting, which was a precursor, of course, to the tabernacle. That's where Moses met with the Lord. So now we see the flesh of Christ as the fulfillment of that holy place. As Jesus teaches just after the cleansing of the temple in the old Jerusalem in chapter 2 and verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John then explains that he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' humanity. Jesus' humanity is the temple, the tabernacle of the new Jerusalem. It is the new holy place. John continues, And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Just as Moses longed to see God's glory in Mount Sinai and was given more of a glimpse of it than any Old Testament saint, 
So John now says, we, that is, he and the rest of the apostles, have seen his glory. You remember this happened in the upper room? Philip said to Jesus, just show us the Father, it's enough for us. He's essentially asking what Moses asked on Mount Sinai. God, show me your glory. So what John is now revealing to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that he and the rest of the apostles were eyewitnesses of the divine glory, which was fully and finally revealed through the incarnation of the Son. Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long, you still don't understand. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now what he doesn't mean is I'm the Father. But what he means is, I am the Son sent from the Father. I am God. The Father and I are one. So later in chapter 2 and verse 11, John comments on Jesus' first miraculous sign saying, This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cain in Galilee, and listen, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So when John says he and the rest of the disciples have seen his glory, part of what he means is they saw the divine glory revealed in and through the signs and wonders that Jesus performed during his public ministry. He doesn't mean that he with his natural eyes saw deity, the very being of God. He doesn't mean that. But he means we saw the glory nonetheless. We saw the glory of God humanity of Christ and the works that Christ performed during his public ministry. But beyond this, as we'll see later in John's Gospel, those signs and wonders were just precursors really to the greatest miraculous sign that Jesus ever performed. Namely, his putting death to death through death and then rising from the dead. All of the, the seven signs that John touches upon throughout this gospel the miraculous signs Jesus performed. From the turning of water into wine at the wedding came of Galilee to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's all leading up to the greatest sign which is He Himself rising from the dead never to die again but rising up in glory advancing our humanity in a glorified life. How did John and the other apostles see the glory of God in the man Christ Jesus? They saw it primarily in the way that the Father granted the Son to have life in Himself. Chapter 5, verse 26. They saw it in the way that Jesus had authority to lay down His life and to take it up again. John 10, verse 18. What weird creature could lay down his life and take it up again. It's not possible for a creature to do that. The moment a creature lays down his life, he gives up all of his potency. He has no power to do anything. But Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is the Son of God. 
Jesus has life in himself and has been given authority to take up his life again even after he lays it down. The vision of divine glory that the apostles saw far exceeded anything that Moses ever saw. Not because it was essentially different, but because it was complete. It was complete. What Moses saw was partial. Moses saw God's backside glory, as it were. What the apostles saw was the fullness of that glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now many commentators believe that the word that translated only begotten, you see that in the King James Version and the New King James Version, ought to simply be translated only or unique. And that's actually the, the interpretive call that we see in the ESV. So they would translate the word as only Son. That's the way we have it here in our text for this evening. And I believe that's wrong. That's why I read it wrong earlier. There are good reasons, I think, to believe that John means only begotten. We see one of those reasons in verse 18. So if you look just a little bit further down the text, verse 18, which contains the same Greek word, if that Greek word is translated with a mere only, then what we have is this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made it known. Now to speak of Jesus as the only God who is at the Father's side seems clumsy at best. It makes much more sense to use the other translation, which would read this. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. That's far clearer. No one has ever seen God, that is the essence of God, but the only begotten God, that is the Son, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. How? Through His incarnation. John is the only New Testament author who speaks of the Son as begotten from the Father. And thus, by way of analogy, through creaturely processions of sons from fathers, along with words from intellects, as we saw when we looked initially at verses uh, 1 through 5, Oh, pardon me, one through three. He gives us a window into the divine possession of the Son from the Father. What exactly, what exactly is the Son in distinction from the Father? He is that divine procession, that eternal procession of begottenness from the Father. If the Father is unbegotten and unreceiving, then the Son is begotten God. And the Spirit is proceeding God. And this is why John describes the only begotten Son as being full of grace and truth. This is once again a reference back to Exodus chapters 33 and 34 when God revealed His backside glory to Moses on the summit of Mount Sinai. He spoke forth His name saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, who will by no means fear the guilty. We see two divine attributes in that name. The Lord describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to labor, abounding in steadfast love. That's what John means by the word grace. Full of grace. God is gracious, delighting to bestow his love on undeserving sinners like you and me. But we also see 
see a divine attribute of faithfulness, which is another way of speaking of trustworthiness or truthfulness, especially in view of God's covenant promises. And that's what John means by the word truth. So when John describes the only begotten Son as being full of grace and truth, what he means is that this Son who is incarnated, whose glory they saw with their own eyes, is the same God who passed before Moses on Mount Sinai. He's the source of all saving grace and truth. He is the covenant Lord who forgives sins and keeps covenant with His people forever. Look verse 15. The text says, John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. The Apostle John now returns to the figure that he introduced in verse 6, namely John the Baptist. The evangelist told us back in verses 6-8 that John the Baptist was sent from God to bear witness to the coming of the Messiah that all might believe through Him. And so now we learn that He fulfilled that God-given mission. He bore witness about Jesus saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Indeed, John the Baptist was under no delusions of grandeur as we're going to see when we get to chapter 3. As he says later in chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so now we see that he very clearly understood that Jesus was the eternally begotten Son, the Word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. Jesus may have come after John in terms, of, in terms of their public ministries, but he ranks before John in every way. Why? Well, because, as John says, he was before me. In other words, John recognized that Jesus is eternal God. He is fully God. He is the great I Am, as he repeats throughout his gospel. The glory that John the Baptist and the apostles beheld, along with numerous other eyewitnesses, was none other than the divine glory in flesh. They saw with their eyes the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And that brings us to verses 16 through 18, where we see receiving the divine glory. Looking at verse 16, the text says, For from his fullness we have all received Grace upon grace. John now shifts from the glory beheld to the glory received. It's important to remember what he means by the word receive here. Earlier in verse 12, he wrote, but to all who did receive him, and then he added this, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so with that dependent clause, who believed in his name, he's explaining what he means by receiving Christ. It further clarifies what, what is meant by receiving him. And so when the evangelist speaks of receiving grace upon grace, he's speaking of the saving grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And notice the logic of what he says here below. From his fullness, from His fullness, that is, from His divine fullness, which is what? Which is infinite, superabounding. We all, He says, not just the apostles, but all who believe in Him, have received, that is, by faith, grace upon grace. 
this idea of the fullness of Christ, which is a picture of his deity, is something that John emphasizes throughout this gospel. We see it in the miraculous signs that Jesus performs, but we also hear it in what he teaches about himself. He teaches in chapter 3 that he is the light that fills the world. Pushing back the darkness, he teaches in chapter 4 that he is that fountain of living water that bubbles up forever, eternally, refreshing the soul. In chapter 6, he teaches that he's the bread from heaven, that if any come and eat of him, they won't die, but will live forever. In these and many other ways, we see Jesus' divine fullness. This is the divine fullness that abounds to all who entrust themselves to him so that they receive grace upon grace. You hear the fullness there. There's no lack. There's no insufficiency. And make no, no mistake, the progression there is cumulative. Though God has been gracious to His people from the beginning, and especially through the law of Moses, though they already received this grace in that way, in the first coming of Christ, they received grace upon, or in addition to, that grace. In other words, the fullness of the incarnate Son is revealed not only in His divine person and work, but also in the advancement and administration of the covenant of grace which He performed after His first coming in the outpour of Holy Spirit. Later in chapter 4, Jesus will teach the Samaritan woman, saying, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Jerusalem or, pardon me, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John continues, Writing, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then he writes, Jesus said to her, I do speak to you and he. Thus we see the additional grace that results from Jesus first coming through the outward Holy Spirit. We no longer approach God through earthly copies like a stone temple, like uh, animal sacrifices. We no longer approach God through earthly copies and provisional shadows like, like Moses and the people of Israel under the old administration. But we approach Him through the heavenly originals and the eternal light, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Look at verse 17. The apostle continues, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now some have interpreted John to be setting up a contrast here, but I think nothing can be further from the truth. John isn't contrasting law with grace the way Paul does when he combats the legalists. John is highlighting a progression from grace to grace. That is, from the types and shadows of the law, all of which anticipated the Christ to come, to Christ Himself. 
God revealed His grace and truth to Moses at Mount Sinai. And He administered that same grace and truth among His people through His law for a time. But grace and truth actually came and was made flesh and dwelt among us through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. He says, No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Again, we find the evangelists, I think, appealing to the themes of Exodus chapter 33 and 34 that are central to this particular part of His Gospel. And in that text, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Bible is very clear that God dwells in unapproachable light. Not simply because of our sin, but because of our creatureliness. No creature has ever seen God in His essence. Because no creature can see God in His essence. What we see of God, what we know of God, comes by way of His revelation to us. And His revelation to us is conditioned for reception by us as creatures. God speaks to us in a language that we can understand. He reveals Himself through images that we can grasp. Through that revelation, we know Him truly. We know Him truly, but never comprehensively. In other words, we don't know Him the way He knows Himself. We may think God's thoughts after Him as we avail ourselves of His self-disclosure in Holy Scripture, but none of us can actually think His thoughts. Nonetheless, though no one has ever seen or ever can see God, John tells us the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Of course, the only begotten God is the Son who is eternally begotten from the Father. He is the one who is at the Father's side. That is, in the Father's bosom. The image there is one of intimacy. One of intimacy. And as we, as we learn, as we, we get further into the text of John and the rest of the Holy Scriptures, we see that that intimacy is actually an identity with regard to nature. The Father and the Son have an identical divine nature. There's no distinction when it comes to their nature, their being. There's only distinction in terms of their persons, in terms of their eternal possessions. Later in chapter 13, verse 23, John will describe himself as he reclines at table with Jesus and the rest of the disciples in the upper room using the same phrase. The text says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. That is, in Jesus' bosom. Meaning they were positioned very closely to one another. This is the, the image that John now applies to the Son in relation to the Father. The Son is in the bosom of the Father in the sense that they share identically the same essence. In other words, as Jesus will teach later in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And so what John is saying is this God who can't be seen has been made seeable as it were, through the sending of His Son into the world. 
Through the incarnation of the only begotten Son from the Father, the Word become flesh, God has revealed His essential glory as fully and as finely as possible. To know the Son whom the Father sent is to know the Father who sent Him. Later in chapter 14 and verses 8 through 11 we read, Philip said to him, Lord, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Love in our text this afternoon, we have seen the Apostle John introducing one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith, namely the incarnation of the only begotten Son from the Father. Through the incarnation, God has come near. He has come near to deal with our sins once for all and to dwell among us. Moses and all of Israel, as they prevailed in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, there was a threat from God that He might leave them. God issued that threat to Moses. He said, I'm going to leave you behind. You keep going to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. In the incarnation of the Son of God, in His joining with our humanity, there's no longer any threat that He would ever leave us. He has to come and love us. He is our high priest who is able to sympathize with us in every way because he has suffered our weaknesses without sin, of course. Through the incarnation, God has made himself visible to us as fully and finally as he possibly can. He has given himself to us. That's what the incarnation means. God gave Himself to His people at Mount Sinai, but there was still a division. There was still a curtain between the most holy place of the tabernacle and the general population of the church. There was still a division between the summit of the mountain where only Moses was allowed to go base of the mountain where the people could be. Jesus has rent that curtain in two. There's no longer a separation. But all who believe on Him have been made priests and have been invited to approach boldly the throne of grace. They might have communion with God in Him without any threat of ever being separated from Him again. This is the glory of the Gospel according to the Apostle Paul. 
young man yesterday on Zoom, young man back in Eastern Kentucky, and working through some things with him, going through the gospel with him, the basics of the gospel. And we found ourselves in Romans 8. Oftentimes I find myself in Romans 8. I think you do too. And Paul ends that glorious presentation of the gospel saying, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the cause the Son of God was incarnated in flesh. He has given Himself as the final sacrifice for your sins. Your sins can no longer separate you from God. They can invoke God's fatherly displeasure and bring His discipline down upon you. And that is His love to you. It is for your good. Nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing. In the incarnation, God gave Himself to you. That's the glory of the Christian faith for us. Look at any other religion in the world. All the pagan religions. What's it about? It's about manipulating God to get something I want. That's it. It's not about God giving Himself to His people. That's what Christianity is about. That's the biblical faith. God gives Himself to us. None of us has seen Christ the way that John the Baptist, can you imagine John the Baptist raising his head and seeing Christ? There he is! No Old Testament prophet we've ever seen. None, not even Moses. There he is. The apostles saw him as well. Though we haven't seen him, the apostle Peter reminds us in his first letter. We have received Him by believing in Him. We, have, we may not have seen Him with our natural eyes. One day we will. But we have seen Him with spiritual eyes. And that's the most important kind of seeing. Have you seen Him? Have you seen Him with those spiritual eyes? Have you received Him your Lord and Savior? Have you entrusted yourself to the Word that became flesh? It's the very embodiment of divine grace and truth. If not again this evening, not exactly now. Important to come to Christ. Trust Him. Look to Him by faith. He stands ready to receive all who will trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are God who has given Yourself to Your people in the incarnation of the eternally begotten Son from the Father. The One who is full of grace and truth. We marvel, our Father, that You would call sinners like us unto Yourself. That You would give us eyes that we might behold this glory. Father, we pray that 
there are any among us who haven't yet seen the Lord Jesus in this way, our covenant children, haven't yet seen Jesus in this way, they might open their eyes to behold His glory. They might flee to Him and trust Him and know that He is their all-sufficient Savior. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.